Good morning, Citizens Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 to 19. This is the reading of God's word. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This is the word of the Lord. We are currently in a series called The Emotionally Healthy Church. And each week we're working through the principles of emotional health outlined in a book by Peter Scazzaro, who's a pastor out in New York. And we're looking at each principle through the lens of scripture. And what we're talking about this morning is something that I think all of us either consciously or subconsciously deal with on a daily basis. And that's the power of the past. At the heart of our text today is this command, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. In Isaiah 43, God is speaking to a people who have a tendency to live in the past, a tendency to get trapped into certain mindsets, into certain cycles of behavior, into old patterns of thinking, a people whose inability to break free from the power of the past directly hinders their capacity to see God at work in and through them. You know, one of the ways you know you're getting old is when you start having those moments in life, when you say or do something and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, I am literally becoming my parents. I mean, this happens to me now almost on a daily basis. And more often than not, it's always the things I used to vow I would never say or do if I ever had kids of my own. I said I would never be a tiger dad if I ever had kids. I was going to be the chill dad. I was going to be the dad who lets my kids explore and make mistakes and do things their way. Well, my daughter is learning how to write the alphabet these days. And one thing I'm noticing about myself is that I tend to get really antsy when I'm sitting next to her while she's practicing her letters. I'm like, ah, don't hold your pencil like that. Hey, uh, hey that's great, but uh, can you make sure you extend that line to the top of the page? Hey, oh, okay, that's really good, but the next time you write a lowercase d, can you make sure you start with the round part? And there are these moments when I'm doing this, and I know I'm being so annoying, but I can't stop. I can't help it. You see, no matter how hard I try, there is no escaping the fact that I am an oldest son of immigrant parents who grew up in a culture in which academic achievement was the pathway to a better life. There is no escaping the fact that there were expectations placed on me at a young age to perform at a certain level, to do things a specific way for an intended result. And I can't deny the fact that that reality has shaped me to become the person and the parent I am today. And whether I like it or not, I will probably pass down aspects of that reality to my kids, who will then pass it down to their kids and their kids and so forth. And I think when you're younger, you don't realize how much your experiences are shaping you as a person. But I think as you get older and you start to look at the way your life is unfolding, you look at your relationships, you look at the decisions you make every day, you start paying attention to the things that make you tick, then you begin to realize just how much you are a product of your past. In fact, all of us are products of a narrative that started long before we were ever born. A narrative that continues to morph and develop as we grow up in a specific time and place, as we come into contact with specific people, as we experience change and grief and loss. 
a narrative that we either consciously or subconsciously bring into our friendships, our marriages, and our workplaces. You know, Scazzaro says the next time you're in a board meeting talking to six people sitting around a table, keep in mind that you're talking to a lot more than six people. You're talking to six different families. You're talking to six sets of emotional baggage. You're talking to all the many voices that have shaped the people sitting in front of you. If you've ever gone to therapy or had counseling of any kind, you know that a large part of what you're trying to do is uncover those things in your past that have shaped the way you resolve conflict, that have shaped the way you express anger, approach relationships, organize your priorities. You have to answer questions like, what kind of home did you grow up in? Did you move around a lot? How did your parents treat each other? Were you the favorite child or the forgotten child? Were there instances of deep emotional pain? Was there abandonment, divorce, a death in the family, financial hardship? The bottom line is that all of us have a story and we all carry that story around wherever we go. So before you judge that person in your life who can't seem to hold down a relationship, who pushes people away every time things start to get serious, know that he or she has a story. Before you judge that hypercritical person in your office who seems to have it out for you, who calls you out on a daily basis for no reason at all, know that he or she has a story. Before you judge that loud, obnoxious friend who always needs to be the center of attention, know that he or she has a story. We all do. And for some of us, the story that defines us can be traced back generations. And for others of us, to a single moment in our own lives when someone we loved said or did something to us that just stuck with us. When someone we trusted abandoned or betrayed us. When we made a horrible mistake that still haunts us to this day. And we see examples of both in the Bible. You see examples of generational sin. You know, take the story of Abraham and his descendants found in the book of Genesis. You know, typically when we think of Abraham, we think of him as the father of our faith. We think about the guy who was willing to kill his own son in obedience to God. When you actually read his story, the guy was far from perfect and his life was marked by patterns of sin that get passed down from generation to generation. And for example, you see regular patterns of deceit. Twice Abraham lies about his wife being his wife. And then we see those same patterns of lying and trickery manifested in his son Isaac and his wife Rebekah's marriage. And then Isaac's son Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver, manipulates his entire family to steal his brother's birthright and his father's blessing. And by the time you get down to the fourth generation, you have Jacob's sons who all conspire together to fake the death of their younger brother Joseph and end up selling him into slavery. You see, Joseph's life in some ways is just the culmination of habits and patterns that were passed down from generation to generation. It's kind of like those 23andMe tests. You know, I'm too scared to take one of those, but my wife has. And I think it's just fascinating to see how DNA gets passed down, how all of us are predisposed to certain diseases or a certain body shape, and how certain things about us that seem random actually aren't that random at all. This is why we say racism is generational. You may say, but I didn't enslave anyone. I didn't put the systems in place that have held black people down for hundreds of years. Why should I be held responsible? 
Well, it's because this is exactly how generational sin works. Mindsets, habits, patterns, cycles that persist in and through us, whether we are aware of it or not. Now, along with generational sin, we also see countless examples in Scripture of people defined by experiences in their own life. Take Moses, for example. You have this guy who was raised in the royal house, got a first-class education, a young rising leader, has a bright future ahead of him, who ends up making one huge mistake. He ends up killing an Egyptian and then has to flee for his life and then spends what would have been the prime of his career in the middle of nowhere tending sheep. And when God meets him at the burning bush in Exodus 3 and says, you're the one who's going to lead my people out of Egypt, you know what Moses says? He doesn't say, yes, I've been waiting for this my whole life. Put me in, coach. No. He says, what if they don't listen to me? I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. You see, that one mistake defined his view of himself. And now he can't even fathom the thought that God would choose him to free his people. Some of us are like Moses. We're still living in the past. We're dwelling on that thing we did 10 years ago that we've never told anyone about. That thing we've never forgiven ourselves for that makes us feel like we're never gonna be good enough. Some of us are still held captive to words that were said to us when we were kids. When somebody said we would never amount to anything and we're still trying to prove that person wrong. We're using social media to show people just how successful we are. And every comment and every like is like a drug that gives us that affirmation we always craved. This is the power of the past. Well, how do we break free from that? And I think there are three steps to this. Number one, it begins with a deep awareness of how our past has shaped us. In verse 18, when it says, remember not the former things nor consider the things of old, I don't think it's telling us to erase the past altogether. I mean, that can't be what it's saying because literally three chapters later in Isaiah 46, it says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Similarly, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, when the apostle Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now we know he isn't saying literally forget everything that's happened in your life because he spends the entire first half of that chapter talking about his past. In fact, more than anyone, I think the Apostle Paul understands that we need to name the things in our past so that we can be freed from them. As John Calvin says in his Institutes, without knowledge of self, There is no knowledge of God. A critical part of growing into maturity in Christ is identifying how our families, how our experiences, our successes and failures have shaped us to be the people we are today. There's a reason why step one of Alcoholics Anonymous is admitting you have a drinking problem. Healing and restoration cannot take place until we name the addiction, the trauma, the abuse, the bitterness that has taken a hold of our hearts. And this isn't going to be easy because it's going to force us to re-engage with those experiences and those memories that we would honestly rather ignore or just delete forever. But you know what I love about the story of how Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection? You know, you would think if you had the power to rise from the dead, 
you would also have the power to appear to your disciples in any form you desired, with no blemishes or marks or scars. And yet the first thing Jesus says when he appears to his disciples is, look at my hands and my feet. Touch these scars. As if to remind us that we can only experience the victorious power of the resurrection after we've named and experienced the utter shame and devastation of the cross. Now, one big challenge all of us are going to face as we do this work is that as a society, we kind of have a strange, often hypocritical relationship with the past. You know, when it comes to generational sin, we always want to ignore it. We say things like, why are we so hung up on the past? Why are we dwelling on things that happened hundreds of years ago? Why are we dishonoring the dead? Let's just move forward. But ironically, when it comes to a person's individual sins or a person's past mistakes, we're all over that. We will find an obscure tweet by a celebrity from 20 years ago, and we will make sure that tweet defines that person's entire existence. We will make sure they never work again. We will make sure they feel the full weight of public shame and condemnation. So you see, as a society, we either ignore the past or we make it everything. You know, think about this. The same people who are sick and tired of everyone talking about the history of racism in this country, same people who are urging everyone to just move on from things that happened hundreds of years ago, these are often the same people who will use a person's checkered past and put it on display for the world to see in order to justify why he or she deserved to be brutalized and dehumanized. So we have to be very careful as we navigate this as individuals and as a community. We name the things in our past not so that we would be controlled by them, but so that we can take these things to Jesus and ask him to free us. Which brings us to the second step. Once we've identified the things in our past that have impacted us, we must then ask God for healing. No human being will ever be able to heal the pain of your past. No husband will be able to fix the broken relationship you had with your father. No amount of wealth will be able to give you the validation you didn't receive as a child. No drug, no diet, no app will fix the anxiety you have from years of running from your past. Because no matter how far or fast you try to run, your past will always catch up to you. Your past that tells you you're lacking in some way. Your past that tells you you are unworthy or unlovable. You all know I have two young children in my house, so I apologize for this Lion King analogy, but it's all I've been watching for the last two months, so that's what you're gonna get. Uh, but we've all seen the Lion King and we know how the story goes. And it's actually not so different from the story of Moses. I mean, you have Simba, who destined, who's destined to be the king, who makes one huge mistake and then has to flee for his life. Why? Because he's convinced himself that he's the reason his father is dead. And we all know that famous scene when Mufasa appears in the clouds and he says, Simba, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And the moment he does that, all of a sudden, this once scared, insecure lion is ready to go back and take his rightful place on the throne. You see, healing from the past requires us to remember who we really are. More importantly, whose we really are. Now you may be saying, wait, that contradicts the text because verse 18 says, don't remember the former things. But notice what it says in verses 16 and 17 right before that. It says this, this is what the Lord says, 
He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. In other words, the issue isn't remembering. It's remembering the right things. Remember who you belong to. Remember that you belong to a God who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, a God who in the beginning created humanity in his image and said, it is good. But the reason we're so prone to forget this is that when sin entered the picture, you remember from our series in Genesis, the creator's words were no longer the words that defined us. We began to allow other people to define us. We began to buy into false beliefs about ourselves, perpetuated by our families of origin, perpetuated by the enemy every time we failed to live up to the standards placed on us. But friends, this is exactly why Jesus came. So that your past, your family, your experiences, your trauma would not have the final word over your life. Jesus took every failure, every mistake, every sin that has been passed down from your parents and their parents and their parents, and he carried all of it to the cross so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your past. He sees you through the lens of the finished work of his son. And when you know the God of the universe has forgiven you, you can forgive yourself. You can forgive those who've wronged you. Why? Because you no longer have to dwell in the past. You can live every day knowing that Christ, the image of the invisible God, dwells in you. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now obviously we all know that healing takes time. Some of the wounds that we carry around with us have been with us for years. They're wounds that have been opened and reopened dozens of times. You know, they say Moses got the Israelites out of Egypt, but for the life of him could not get Egypt out of the Israelites. When we've lived a certain way with a certain mindset our entire lives, we need to be reconstructed from the ground up. The way Scazzaro puts it is that we have to be reparented into the new life we have in Christ. We actually have to relearn how to live, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters. And this is where the church has such an important role in the healing process. Too often the church just perpetuates what we already believe about ourselves. It perpetuates what our past tells us about us. But if the church is truly to be the body of Christ, the family of God, then we are called to be vessels of God's love, His mercy and acceptance, so that people who encounter us don't just learn what the gospel means on a cerebral level, but experience it firsthand. Experience what it's like not to have to earn acceptance for once. Experience what it's like to have their voices heard and valued. Experience what it's like to have authority figures not abuse them, but care for and shepherd them. So the first step in breaking the power of the past is awareness. The second step is allowing the gospel to heal us. And finally, the third step is trusting in God's plan of redemption. You see, God doesn't just heal us. He gives us a new purpose. Verse 19 says, see, I am doing a new thing. Meaning I'm not just here to fix your heart. I've called you out of the dark places to send you back into the dark places with a new vision and a new hope. 
We all know Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. But too often we forget Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What if I told you that God doesn't just heal your pain? He uses your pain for his glory. What if I told you that God could use the most agonizing things from your past to bring healing to others? What if I told you that the power of God is greater than the power of your past? You know, what I love about this passage is that God doesn't just say, I'm doing a new thing. He says, I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Not in spite of the wilderness or apart from the wilderness. He's making a way in the wilderness. In the very place of your greatest pain, God is doing a new thing. You see, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is coursing through your veins. And the very things that were once symbols of your inability, that were once symbols of your abuse, of your abandonment, now can be symbols of your redemption. You know, this past Thursday was the funeral service of one of the giants of the civil rights movement, Congressman John Lewis who dedicated his entire life to fighting against the systemic injustices that have plagued the black community for centuries. And the funeral service was the culmination of a week-long celebration of his life and his legacy. And there was a video going around on social media last week, and it was a video of his casket making its final trip across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. This is the same bridge where he was beaten by Alabama state troopers during the march to Montgomery in 1965, a day we now know as Bloody Sunday. And a while back, John Lewis in an interview when asked about this day said this, yes, I was beaten, left bloody and unconscious, but I never became bitter or hostile. I never gave up. I believe that somehow in some way, if it becomes necessary to use our bodies to help redeem the soul of a nation, then we must do it. And because he lived by those words, now a bridge that was once a symbol of division and pain and bloodshed stands today as a symbol of redemption and hope. For the believer, this is what we have in the cross. This cross that once symbolized shame and death. This cross where the Savior of the world was bloodied, beaten, and broken. This cross is now a symbol of our redemption and hope. A powerful reminder that we are no longer prisoners of our past, but we're children of God who've been bought with a price and set free by his blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that it's so difficult and painful to think about the past. Many of us are carrying emotional baggage we don't even realize we're carrying. And we've bought into the lies we've told ourselves or that have been told to us. But we thank you that our past does not define us, that your blood speaks a better word than all the lies we've come to believe about ourselves. May we learn to see ourselves the way you see us, not through the lens of our worst mistake, but through the lens of Christ's finished work on the cross. God, help us to be a church that embodies your love and grace and bears witness to the life-transforming power of the gospel. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.